everybody. Welcome to the show. You know where you are, the nine at nine with me, Tigo. And you know, if you're watching right now, I've got somebody waiting in the wings that is an expert, that is cool, that's going to share some amazing information. But today, we're going even further. Today, we're going to talk to somebody that is quickly becoming one of my good friends. But then on top of that, we're going to touch on some stuff like, hmm, when you think of situations that are going on, do you focus on the problem or do you focus on the solution? If you're focusing on the problem, you've come to the right place because when we're done, you're going to be focused on the solution. All right, sit right there. We'll be right back. right? We're going to talk about something that everybody, if you're in business, if you're going to college, if you're working at, you know, McDonald's and you're worried about the problems every day, and then you wonder why you're not getting ahead, it's because you're not worried about or thinking about the solution. Focus on the glass half full and not half empty. And the specialist, the guy that's quickly becoming a good friend of mine, Keurig Ashley is here. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Keurig, are you out there? I am here all the way from the Sunshine Coast of Australia. What's the weather like this time of year in Australia? Because you're on the other side of the equator. Oh, yeah, uh, winter, we're, I'm in the countryside on the Sunshine Coast of Australia. So I'm up uh, near the beginning of the tropics. And right now, it's uh, the mornings are a little chilly. But in daytime, it gets to be about 80 degrees, 85 degrees. And that's winter. That's winter. <laughs> it sounds like Vegas winter. Vegas yeah. winter is about the same. But it gets, we have a month where it actually gets down in the 50s and people act like they're in Austra or Alaska somewhere. It's like, get over it. It's 50 degrees. Let's go to Chicago where it's 50 below. Yeah. <laughs> Which is where I'm from. So, me you know, too. Yeah, so <laughs> the name Sunshine Coast makes me warm. Okay, so I've got to ask you, you know, you have an amazing history. You were an actor, you were a stuntman, you know, you're one of the most successful success coaches on the planet, you know, and now you're an, an, a successful author, all that good stuff. What got you started? What makes you go, one day I want to be an actor? Or did you? And it just happened one day. Uh, well, I, as, as I said earlier, Teresa, I was living in Chicago. I was born and raised there. And um I was 12 years old and I, my dad, he worked in construction, you know, he was old school, grew up in the great depression, all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I said, Hey dad, you know, I decided what I want to do with my life. I want to be an actor. And I said, do you think I'll make it? And he says, you have no drive, no talent, no determination. You'll be a laborer on one of my construction sites, digging ditches. And because wow. of that, I, I, he wasn't, um, by the way, he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being cruel. What he was doing was trying to be a great father and shoot me down from a, an industry that is riddled with, you know, porn and drugs and people not working and all that stuff. So he was just trying to be a good dad. No, but I, I took it at 12 years old. I went down. I lied about my age. I auditioned at Second City and got on stage there with uh, Jim Belushi, George Went from Cheers, 
and spent a number of years at Second City. And then I left for Hollywood when I was 18 years old. Wow. And, uh, and it took me three years to get my first job. But the first movie I did was Two of a Kind with John Travolta and Libby Newton-John. Wow, we just lost her, and what a what a great talent to lose. I mean, everybody's been talking about it now for almost a couple of weeks now. She's been gone, and I saw in the news that all that like her main music is all in the top of the Billboard charts right now because we're all going back down memory lane, and that oh, must yeah. have been so much fun to work with them. I mean, your first movie—that's how like, you started and, and, out. And, well, <laughs> Also, you know, John and I became friends instantly on the show because um, we used to look. Well, actually, he has a he doesn't wear his toupee anymore anyways. So he has a shaved head as well. Um, but we looked very similar in those days. And uh, just we all became friends and I got to hang out with them, um, you know, in their dressing room and making salads together. It was just the best time ever. So once you got into this business, was it like, okay, you got your first gig and then it's like, okay, here comes another, here comes another, or were you, did you have like gaps in there where you had to figure out, okay, how am I going to eat today? There's gaps. There's definitely gaps. And so what I did is I, uh, John Travolta and also the actor James Woods both talked to me because I knew them both really well. And they said, look, if you want to be a, a professional actor, it's a technical business you need to know all the equipment, camera, lenses, lights, all those things. So I got a job behind the camera and I started working as a key and dolly grip and wound up doing over 500 movies. Wow. So it's, uh, you know, there's gaps, but I, I, I didn't want to wait tables or anything. I still wanted to be in the industry working. And you went from being an actor to also not only working behind the camera, but also working as a stuntman, correct? Yes, ma'am. So how did you get into that? Because, and why would you get into that? You want to throw your body out of a window? Why would you do that? <laughs> well, the, the thing is because I'm a, I'm a physical person anyways, and a lot of the roles that I played had action in them, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, but here's the funny thing is when you're muscular, uh, they like putting you in tank tops and all those things. Well, when you're in a tank top, there's no place to hide pads. And so, you know, I was always taking the hard falls. I even uh, stunt doubled Tony Danza once and had to do four flights of cement stairs in a bathrobe, which means there's no place to put uh, stunt pads or whatever. But it was just one of those things. And then stunt coordinators started hiring me when they needed uh, a stunt player who could deliver dialogue. And that's what happened with uh, like Delta Force 2 and and things like that. Now, you mentioned Delta Force 2. I mean, how many movies have you done? And, and how many people, I mean, still, you know, you're talking Stallone. We got a picture of you with Stallone. It's like, how many different people have you been had the opportunity to be on set with? There it is. There's a photo with you and Stallone. You guys look like brothers. <laughs> I don't know if Sly would say that, but uh, that's his house. <laughs> that's his house. We were watching the show. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, he has a Megatron, which is one of those TVs that they have inside of the buildings in New York City in Times Square. You know, and I said, hey, wow. Sly, I didn't know they made those for homes. And he goes, they do now. <laughs> he had a custom made for his house, but I've, I've worked wild. with so many great people. Uh, and, you know, to me, they're, they're peers, they're people you work with. And, mm-hmm. you know, the thing, Teresa, is that what people don't really get about the movies is that it's a business like any other business. And the people who work are the people who know how to market themselves. So mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone hasn't been a movie star for 45 years by accident. 
you know, right. he knows how to market himself. And back in the 80s, I remember him telling me about, you know, that it costs like $50,000 a month just to be Sylvester Stallone. You need the bodyguards, you need the car, you need all these things because he can't show up in the soccer mom van. You know, right. people need that star. And so, and he goes, that's my job because I'm not an actor, I'm a movie star. And so that's my job. When you were an actor, and I, I think once you're an actor, you're always going to be one. Would you ever go back on screen again? Is there a project that you look at and see on, on your home TV and go, man, I should have done that one. That could have been me. Do you no, I gave, all my, <laughs> I gave all my work to Vin Diesel. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, the thing to, I still get asked every once in a while, and I'm just not interested. The thing is because of I used to play a lot of bad guys. And you know, with what I do now, I think it's just a confusing message, you know, for people if they see me playing a bad guy on screen and then teaching personal development and, and the things that I teach now. I can see that. I can see that. And people do get, you know, typecast and they no matter what they do, they're always seen as that character. It's like, you know, Jimmy J.J. Walker lives down the street from here. You see him in the grocery store. He's J.J. in good times and he hasn't been on that set in 50 years. But that's yeah. what you think immediately when you see him. You're like, hey, it's JJ from Good Times. It's like, I'm sure he's sick of hearing that stuff. I'm sure he's over it. Now, you were in a movie, you know, where you actually had a life-changing occurrence that happened and, mm -hmm. and sent you on a whole nother path. Can you share that story with me? Yes. Uh, I, I, it was uh, 1989. I had just finished the movie Lockup with Sylvester Stallone, you know, which mm -hmm. here I'm getting to work with the legend, you know, the icon. And uh, my next movie was Delta Force 2 with Chuck Norris. So... Uh, the funny part was, is in lockup, I have a mohawk and I have two different color eyes and mustache and a goatee, you know, because I'm playing a bad guy, obviously. And so when I get to the Philippines, I've had my hair cut down to a military, uh, what's called a high and tight. So it's pretty much shaved on the sides and really short on top, shaved my mustache. Um, friends of mine were on the set, the key grip, Mike Graham and Don Marshall, the lighting director and Jeff Brewer, one of the stunt guys. So... People didn't even recognize me. They didn't even know me. I mean, they're good friends of mine. They didn't even know who I was. And it was a, uh, a Friday. Uh, we're about to go party in Manila, have a great time. We have one last shot to film. It's just a small um, uh, insert shot where you only have to go up 15 feet with the helicopter, uh, mm -hmm. shoot two lines of dialogue, come back down. No, I've been in a helicopter all day. You know, I probably did 15, 18 flights that day and wow. some really, really hairy stunts. This was easy. And so uh, um, we have eight guys in the chopper. We're sitting on top of this palatial mansion that the Marcos family built as a summer home. And it's right on the edge of an extinct volcano, which has a resort in the center of the volcano. It's really amazing. Wow. It's called Tagatai City. And the place that we were at is called the Palace in the Sky. 
and um, the chopper goes up about two feet and hovers. The cameraman shifts the camera looking for a shot. He, I asked him, I said, hey, Gotti, am I in? He goes, nope, you're out of frame. So I step out. The other door gunner steps out. Chopper goes up, drifts out over the mount, uh, edge of the mountain. Has a mechanical malfunction. The engine shuts off and drops about uh, 1,500 feet. Uh, nose dives down. I'm running for the road. Chopper's going down. Chopper's going down. And uh, I heard the impact. As I got to the chopper, I was the first one to get to it. It was uh, smoking. It was on its side. All the blades shirt off. And uh, over the course of the next few hours, uh, my best friend Mike uh, was in my arms on fire. Wow. Died on the way to the hospital. I lost five of my friends that day. Uh, Jeff Brewer, uh, awesome guy. His son had just turned two years old two days before the crash. I was also with him in the hospital room by myself all night long uh, when he finally passed away um, just before his family literally walked in the door coming in from the States. So, you know, for the next two and a half years, I had a 357 Smith and Wesson pistol in my mouth every night, uh, counting myself down, uh, drugs up my nose, cigarettes, booze. I wasn't partying. I was just trying to kill myself. Luckily, I'm not a success at everything in life. Um, but one day I woke up and realized that your life is not your own. There's people who love you and care about you and look up to you and you're going to take them down with you. So I realized this is not my legacy. And so I unscrewed a broom out of a, a broom pole out of a broom and went in my backyard in Los Angeles in Studio City and cut a line in the sand like a samurai warrior. And I said, once I step over this line, I'm done. I'm done. And uh, that I stepped over the line. I gave up cocaine. I gave up cigarettes. I gave up alcohol abuse. I gave all my guns away. Not to just people wandering down the street. I gave them away to I hope back. not. Yeah. No. You know, <laughs> hey, who wants a shotgun? But it's, yeah. um, it, it, it's used to be the worst, most traumatic time of my life. And now it's one of the most empowering because of changing my perception about it. And what really changed it was asking that magic question, what's great about this? And I know it's a really right. strange question, but when you ask it and you expect an answer, well, the answers I got was, um, you know, I, Mike died in my arms, not in a stranger's arms, and that all the care for the guys was given to them. And I forgot that I lived. That's a pretty good one. And, you know, once I got through the drama, I remembered that I also saved two people's lives that day. Um, and But you forget about that when you get caught up in your drama. So as I listen to you share the story, and thank you so much for sharing that, because it, you know, it feels like it happened yesterday, just listening yeah. to you share it, you know, and I know you carry that with you. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's fighting through their moment right now that has just not gotten to the point where they're ready to put that line in the sand and say, okay, I'm over this. It's time for me to step up or step out. What would you say to that person that you, you know, at that time, if you could talk to yourself, what would you say to that person that's going, yeah, I don't know if I can do tomorrow? Well, I, I would say is that, you know, there's there's people that um, you can help in this planet. And there's people who you can uh, give advice and strategy to and stuff. But those people are slipping through their cracks when we're caught up in our own drama. You know, drama, you know, people's stories, they create what I call drama glue. They keep you stuck in the story. And then they keep the rest of us stuck listening to it. Uh, so instead is, you know, only tell empowering stories, start changing your perception about, you know, by asking what's great about this or how can I look at this in an empowering way? And just by changing your perception, you're going to change the way you feel about it. Because in life, there is no real truth. 
it was only interpretation. I mean, is that good or bad? I mean, I, and the funny thing is you can hand people a free bar of gold and they'll complain about having to carry it to the bank because it weighs too much and probably get taxed on it and the rest of the things. Yeah, um, they will. <laughs> That's amazing. It's like some people, you know, I started the conversation. I started this interview with some people look at the problem, you know, or find the problem when there isn't one instead of just enjoying the moment. And, and and looking at solutions and moving forward. what That's a big part of your life. How do you teach that to someone? How do you get somebody to get past pretty much themselves? A lot of times what's stopping you is you. Well, there's two magic questions, Teresa, that I ask everybody who needs help. And by the way, I've coached hundreds and hundreds of people. I've been in front of over a million people on stage. You know, I've had workshops and the rest of the things that I do. The, the first question is, is do you want to change? Yes or no? Not yes, but here's my story. Yes or no? Because in order for things to change, I must change. The world's not going to come and find me and, you know, all of a sudden, yes, you sir. know, match up to my energy and give you all the rewards. Is that You have to change yourself. You have to evolve yourself. Uh, Charles Darwin said it's not the strong of the species that were survived, nor the most intelligent, it's the ones who are most able to adapt, which means evolve. So do you want to change? Yes or no? If they say yes, then the next question is, is do you want help with that? See, because just because they said yes, to, I, I want to change doesn't mean they're asking you for help. And women get this a lot for men is what, and what happens is they share their challenges or problems and then a man wants to fix it. And the woman's like, I didn't want you to fix it. I just wanted to tell you. So that's where that second question comes in is, do you want help with that? And then after that, the next thing I do is I give them little agreements, not big ones because they can't, it's too big for them. Just a little agreement, little action to get them in motion. And then little by little you add to it. And then pretty soon it's not that long and you just, you have a different experience of life. Wow. I know that there's somebody out there watching right now. Maybe they're, you know, in their second career, you know, after COVID they got laid off and they're finding their way, or, you know, maybe they just got out of high school or college and they're just trying to figure out which direction they want to go in and the direction they want to go in like yourself, like myself, my father was, my mother and father were sharecroppers when they were kids, you know, they were labor workers when I grew up. I wanted to do comedy. My father told me, yeah, you want to do stand-up? Stand your butt up and go get a job. That's your stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he told me. So if there's somebody out there like us that wants to be different, that wants to be out there, but they feel like they're in a circle, just don't support them, just don't have their back, what would you tell them? Well, that, you know, it's a, it's a good story. Again, it's, you know, when we start saying that stuff to ourselves, the fact is that, you know, when you first start working on yourself, you just change the frequency of your energy and people still want to, they want to be around you. But honestly, people don't really want to hang out with people who are in drama. They don't want to hang out with people who their whole life is always about a problem. Oh yeah. For me, people come and they share their challenges with me. Again, I go right into, do you want to change that? And they go, no, I just want to tell you. And I go, well, I don't want to listen to it. And I'm not being insensitive. What I'm being is empowering is I'm being compassionate, but I'm not, um, I don't have pity for you because pity will keep you where you are is, you know, open yourself up. There's people out there, by the way, if you contact me, if you write me, I write back. Um, I've been homeless. I've lived in my car. I've, uh, you know, had every challenge you can think of. I think God puts me through this stuff just so I have better seminar stories, 
but it's um <laughs> it's one of those things is there's always places to reach out but you're gonna have to reach out with the start with the attitude is that yes i want to make this better i just don't want to cast all my drama on people i love it i love it and like i said we started this with you're an actor um you have been a stuntman you know mm-hmm. you're a very successful author and coach this is your latest project yes no Can that's a, i'm writing a new one right now actually that's been out for 11 years it's been a bestseller 11 years it went bestseller in four hours i was my dad he cried when i got a publisher and an agent um and when i called him up i said dad uh pauline your wife said that um he cried when I got a publisher name. He goes, yeah. He goes, I didn't think you could read, let alone write. Uh, <laughs> and again, my dad was justified in saying that because I barely graduated high school. Um, you know, to me, it was more of a social event. And so, you wow. know, it took me four years to write that book. Right now I'm writing the, the next one. It's called The Mystical Mentor. I'm in the middle of writing that one right now. That's amazing. So what made you decide to write this book? I know we're going to have to let you out of here in a second, but I got to ask. What made you decide to write this book? And then what brought up the next one? <clears throat> the title, Teresa. Is, I was coaching somebody and um, and that question came up, how would love respond? And I, as soon as I said it, I said, oh, my goodness, I have to write the book. Because I have to teach people. That's probably the most powerful question ever. And when you really get it, because when you really love yourself, you won't allow yourself to stay broke or fat or poor or depressed or any of those or abused anything because that's not how love responds and so i had to explain the question and that's where the book came from and it was like this burning desire in me the new book it's it's just taken me a number of years to finally formulate what i want in it but it's it's really about um uh, it's more of a story it's more of a uh, like um way of the peaceful warrior by dan millman or one of those books is which I wanted to have a different style. I, I just didn't want to write a sequel to how would love respond is I wanted to challenge myself to see how I could do something different. And by the way, is this one, I've already have people in Hollywood talking about wanting to make into a movie. Will you star in it? No, no. <laughs> Come on now. That's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, of course I'll be there. No, nothing. Oh, can stop yeah. me now. I, I, I will see when that happens, but I don't know if that's what I really want to do. We'll see. Well, I know I got to let you out of here. I asked you for 10 minutes. I've kept you for almost a half an hour, but I just love talking with you. I love connecting with you. I would love it if you come back again and, and hang honored. out with us many, many times to come. Because like we said, the first time we talked, you and I, I think we talked for over an hour, our first conversation. And just yes. instantly you felt like family. I couldn't be, you know, more honored that you reached out to me. And I'm so glad to, you know, include you in our family. And I look forward to many missions to come. Now, um, before we let you get out of here, you got another project coming up, I believe. Stop what's what's stopping you. What is that? It's a it's a free I give a lot we a lot of free training, you know, and it's not sales oriented, all that stuff. It's just you know, to help people, because that's what I do. And so it's stop what's stopping you. Because, you know, I, I hear it from, by the way, the content always comes from people asking me consistent questions. And so I go, that must be something. So let's create a program around it. It will be out in the next two weeks. 
uh, and I'm sure we'll give you information on how to get it. It's totally free, but man, you want to talk about a transformational program? It's a it's a master class. Oh, I can't wait to take this myself. How does someone get in touch with you? I know if someone reaches out to you, you reach back. So what's the best way to get in touch with you? Curic at curicashley.com. I mean, if you write me, I write back. And I, I, in three seconds, there's all the time. People go, I can't believe you actually wrote me back. Wait a minute, I'm a real person. I said that too. And if people write me, I always take the time to write back. And it's funny because I'm on stage a lot of times and they say, hey, I wrote Curic. And I'm like, please don't say I didn't write you, you know. And they go, and he wrote me back. I'm like, oh, that felt good. <laughs> well, I thank you for hanging out with us this time. I hope you come back soon, my brother. It's amazing. Your story, we touched on this much of it. There's layers and layers and layers to come. And I learn something every time I talk to you. You are absolutely amazing. You're the best. I, you know, it's like I've known you my whole life somehow. So I can't wait to see you in person. I'll come to Vegas just to see you. And I'll come to Australia just to hang out with you. That's it. We're planning a family trip. Okay. See you. I'll, yeah. I'll talk to you soon, brother. This was amazing. You too. Bye, too. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You know I want you to come back next time. And if for some reason you miss... Curic at curicashley.com. You know what to do. Go to Tigo Direct. You can find out more information about my new brother, my new family member. And as always, I'm Tigo. I'll talk to you next time.